someone has to decide on which summit you want to walk or hike. Yeah? So someone has, to, has an idea where to go. Welcome to Careerview Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry, looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Fox. Eric Ebner von Eschenbach, listeners. Eric is an assertive and result-oriented leader. He has a history of building high-performance management teams combined with in-depth understanding of the financial services, IT services, and automotive industries. He's held positions with global leadership responsibility for over 8,000 employees spanning 40-plus countries. In our conversation, we discuss Eric's journey from bank apprentice to global head of financial services, and then global head of after sales for BMW. We talk about his time on Wall Street, what it was like heading up BMW's treasury function during the global financial crisis, and the successful integration of ING car leasing and Alphabet. Eric shares his early leadership experiences during his period of military service and his later strategy to develop a global culture by leveraging young talent. I know Eric as a driven and innovative leader with a focus on growing people and developing positive and progressive organisational culture. It's my pleasure to share his career story in this episode. If you enjoy listening to my guests' career stories, please follow Careerview Mirror in your podcast app. This episode of Careerview Mirror is brought to you by the Aquila Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world if you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquili.co.uk. Hello, Eric, and welcome. And where are you coming to us from today? Welcome, Andy. I'm uh, sitting in Munich, Bavaria, hometown of Oktoberfest, which is uh, actually running right now for another seven days. It's, it's Germany, basically. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And that question was very much for our listeners, because I can recognise from your background where you are <laughs> in your lovely home in Schwabing. So I am grateful for you. I'm so grateful for you joining me to have this conversation, especially because it is Oktoberfest and you're headed there after this conversation. So I promise not to not to keep you too long. I wish I could be there as well and enjoy some of that. But thank you very much for, for joining me. So you're in Munich now. Where did your journey start? Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born um, in Munich. I grew up in Munich. So I spent a significant part of my life in Munich and a couple of years uh, in New York. So these right. are my two, let's say, homes. So. Okay, I'm, I look forward to hearing about the New York spell in a little while. So I'm always curious to know what sort of childhood my 
uh, guests have had. What sort of roles did they have visibility of? What did their parents do? And what was the family dynamic with brothers and sisters? So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? So I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Uh, my sister is nine years younger. My, my brother is two years younger. But I grew up in a typical German, after-war, middle-class family. My family basically lost everything in the war. So my family had to really build up their life from, from scratch. Uh, my mother comes from Erfurt, which after the war was basically the, occupied by the Russians. So it was the so-called DDR later on. So she fled from um, this area into Western Germany and then had to start a complete new life uh, in Western Germany. Right. My father worked at the Ministry of Economics in Bavaria till he retired. Okay. So certainly numbers and economics were a feature of your childhood then? <clears throat> to be honest, my main focus was sports. I really enjoyed um, sports. I, I played a lot of soccer. I, I did a lot of uh, skiing. And at the end of the day, I, my dream job after uh, high school um, or finishing my IB was a uh, sport teacher. Right. Which, my, particularly my father, didn't found a very prospectus or you know, very good job. So after I spent two years in the army, he got me into a banking apprenticeship program at a Munich bank here. Okay, can we go back just a little bit, then, yeah. Eric? So he was a, he was a was he a government? He was involved in government, was he? So quite a senior role. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking, is it fair to say you have quite an aristocratic name? So Eric Ebner von Eschenbach sounds quite. Aristocratic. It, it is aristocratic, and it has also, a, a, let's say, a famous part to it. So there is an, a writer, Marie Ebner von Eschenbach, and she wrote a, um, a couple of books. She's quite famous in Österreich, in Austria. Ah. But our okay. family in the 15th, 16th century uh, split up in a, in a Catholic and a Protestant family. And so Marie um, Ebner von Eschenbach was was the last, how to say, the, the last living person of the Catholic arm of our family. Right. There's a, there's a book called Krambambuli, and that's uh, mandatory for any primary school kid in Austria. Therefore, a lot of people recognize the name. Ah, okay. Well, thanks for enlightening me about that. And whilst having the aristocratic name, you had then a middle-class upbringing. Though. So the family had lost everything during the war so it sounds like your father had a good job but you weren't growing up in castles or uh, no nothing uh, compared to what you see in great britain with uh, <laughs> a family <laughs> I, still nicely, I still nicely behave and i'm not uh, my, my parents were not celebrated in, in all these nice uh, magazines no we had a um, townhouse, a small townhouse where we grew up. Uh, today it's within Munich, but uh, more than 30 years ago, it was outside, basically outside at, at the verge of the city of Munich, um, somewhere between the old airport and Munich. Today it's a new exhibition area and I had to travel quite long uh, to the city and I saved the money for my the miniature rail trains. So that was a, something you were interested in as a... As a yeah, yeah, I did with my father. So going forward then to you 
your ideal job would have been to be a sports teacher. That was your your passion, if you like. But that was not your father. Obviously, was strongly influential in in the direction that he wanted you to to take. And uh, do you think that was influenced at all by the background the family had? The sort of wanting to really get you into a position where you would have financial security. I strongly believe that um, it was really based on the experience of my parents after the war, and at that time. There was a strong belief if you have a banking job, you are financially uh, on the safe side. It was a growing industry and everybody felt safe. Uh, my father at that time basically told me that anyone who finishes an apprenticeship and gets a banking job has a lifetime job. Yeah. We'll talk um, later in this conversation about what, how you've guided your children yeah. um, and, and your thoughts on on that. Uh, I'll be looking forward to that. So you were with his support, with his with his very strong encouragement, let's say, helped into a into the banking world. It, before we leave school, though, what sort of you liked your sport and you do mountain biking and skiing and you've stayed incredibly active throughout. And there's also perhaps you're quite famous for that and, and appreciated for that by your friends uh, for guiding them on ski tours and uh, <laughs> And mountain biking tours. So you've you've stayed true to your passion for, for sport. You're obviously, given the career that you've managed to have, you're obviously very capable to handle the academic side of, of banking and finance and, and corporate life since. So as you were leaving school, what did it mean going in this direction? Where What were your first steps after school? Well, the first step after school was I had no clue what to do. And therefore, I got, went to the army. And um, at that time, um, you could extend your mandatory time by six or eight or nine months to two years. And then you, you got a reasonable pay. And, and that gave me financial independence. So it was the first time um, being at the army to be independent from um, financially independent from my parents, which was right. a big goal. And afterwards, I, I just had no clue and no idea, honestly, what to do. I didn't want to fight with my father about this uh, sport teacher career path. And therefore, I took on the challenge of having a banking apprenticeship. And then I was lucky because they sent me to Garmisch-Partenkirchen. So I, I spent two years in a bank. And at, at lunch, we went out. Uh, at that time, there were no mountain bikes, but we went out skiing between noon and two. So we had dresses uh, at, the, at the bank branch um, to go skiing for two hours. Fantastic. <laughs> but I don't know many people who have had that experience. So what age were you when you did military service? Which age? What yeah. age did you get to go to the uh, army? Nine, I think it was 19. 19 right. or 20. Yeah. And you did two years there because that way you got a little bit more money for doing it. And that gave you independence from the family. Yeah. And then you got an apprenticeship, a banking apprenticeship after that, based yeah. in Garmisch. So yeah. you could go skiing or it meant that you could go skiing in the army. And actually the army had a quite significant influence to me uh, because in, in a very short time period, I, I was in an engineering troop and they worked very closely with uh, US forces on some nuclear ammunition. And they looked for someone who can lead a German team of 30 people, 30 soldiers, and interact with the Americans. And I could speak English quite well. So I was given the responsibility for these 30 people 
much, much earlier than anyone, well, not anyone, but many people in the army. So I, I learned leading people under really, let's say, tough um, circumstances and all this training at the army. I was going to ask you when you got your first leadership experience. Just from my own experience yeah. of, of working with you, you were always, by that time, very people-focused and, and very interested in developing people and creating opportunities for people. So this is interesting that it was relatively early that you were, and under quite difficult circumstances, where you were first given responsibility for other people. Yeah, and, 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 and the inter interesting part was, and I realized it later on, not um, in this two-year service, the different military styles of the U.S. Army and the German Army. Oh, please tell me about that. <laughs> well, I think the doctrine at that time, the U.S. doctrine is very much, these are, are professionals, yeah? so they don't, you don't have mandatory military service in the U.S., well, you didn't have it at that time. <clears throat> so it was a clear order-driven management style. So if someone said, okay, go left, then everybody turned left. In the German army, I think based on the history, it was you were trained to be allowed to question a decision of your uh, superior. Yeah, so you, if someone said, okay, you go left, and you had um, serious concerns that this is right or wrong, you were allowed to question the order. That contradicts everything I've ever thought or heard about what you need to do if you're in the military. Well, it, it, it rarely happens, but, you know, th that's how we were trained because they wanted to make sure, um, and we had a lot of political classes, they wanted to make sure that in the German army, there's never, ever a single person uh, dominating the, part of the army again. And okay. so, for example, you, you, don't, you don't put your art on a person, you do it on the country. Yeah. But anyway, so the interesting part is you have a lot of um, rules and regulation, which strongly supports you as a, a, as a lieutenant or as a leader in the army. But what, what, you, what I very quickly realized is that this has no value at all if you in a fighting environment. So we trained really hard with the U.S. Army. And at that time, we, had, we still had probably the peak of the Cold War. Yeah, so, so we were at the border to East Europe. We dealt with uh, nuclear weapons, all kind of nuclear weapons. And it was interesting that in these trainings that you con could convince soldiers to do things not with the authority you were given, but the way you treated them. And that really kind of made the biggest difference. And the best example is we trained in the mountains, basically at the border of close to Salzburg. And there's an area which is... It's really cold. This is one of the coldest spots uh, in Germany. And we trained there for a couple of days. And I was not allowed, well, we were trained also to use food and drinks they typically use to support an army, yeah? which are not tasteful. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I had the opportunity uh, and we passed a bakery where we had an opportunity to as a supermarket, I bought beer and uh, pretzels and stuff. And that made the biggest difference. Yeah. Whenever they did a good job, I allowed them to use the, the armed truck to stop at the back end of a bakery and we bought the whole, the whole shop empty. Yeah? Right. And, and this is a picture I have always in mind. Yeah. You, you cannot force people to do something which if, if you cannot really motivate them. And I think 
particular in let's say in you know war i never experienced a war fortunately uh, but if, if you train it you realize that people go over the edge and having them trust you and and have them motivated and appreciated is the only way to keep them uh, moving in your direction yeah but moving your direction supporting them. Mm. so hierarchy alone the the authority of position is not sufficient to really motivate people they needs to come from something else did that come naturally to you at that time eric or did you learn it from watching someone else or had you had a coach when you were younger who treated a team like that or where did you get given they were older than you as well yeah they were older and some of them spent their time in prison so they were people who were in the age between 14 and 18 um had had committed minor crimes but they were always in this in the were always sent to this uh, particular area of the military <clears throat> actually I, I learned it just by doing i had no no one to tell me because the typical school there are schools where you learn how to lead a team in combat <clears throat> they tell you different mm. because they still there was a lot of senior people who who experienced the second world war and they were the ma- vast majority were still influenced by what they experienced in the structure and 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 the hierarchy um, of the german army in the second world war yeah so the ways they were used to were were different okay shall we move into the bank yes then and you said you didn't want to fall out with your father you didn't want to argue with him about this you you went on this path and from a lifestyle point of view the job sounded good going skiing in the afternoons doesn't sound too bad at all and did you embrace the job itself did you enjoy doing the work uh, to be honest at the end it was really a challenge because i didn't understand the dialect of the local people in garmisch <laughs> <Okay. laughs> i'm laughing i have no idea what they might sound well, they, like they speak uh, at that time they spoke very strong bavarian dialect and so anyway well it it, it was funny with the people and i think at the end of the at the day i enjoyed working with people and 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 I got into banking and and there were a lot of manual work to be done which apprentices had to do yeah so we didn't have computers <clears throat> we got all the, uh, the the bank account slips every day and 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 people were coming and got their um, information slip about their um, banking account. Um, elderly people looked at their saving account. So it, the job has changed so dramatically that I think if you go in a bank branch today, there's nothing left what I did when I started my banking career. Mm. A lot of my, well, a good number of my guests have done similar things, Eric, that they've ended up in senior roles in financial services and they've started right at the bottom Mm-hmm. in the bank and it just seems to be such a valuable thing to do to have that even though things might have changed now but to have that real understanding of of what happens uh, what the processes are with the customers and and so on i think the key is um, and, and i think this is 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 true for any industry is that you value the people and you value what they do in a different way if you have done it yeah so um and probably we touch on it later but um i think it fits quite nicely i worked on the assembly line um with BMW and working in a 9 hour shift 
Yeah, my whole back, my whole body was sour. Yeah, and I felt really fit. So, you know, I, I did sport for my life. So I said, it's not, not a challenge, but I really got a complete different appreciation, level of appreciation when I spent some time at the Zempline here at the plant in Munich. Mm. And a nine hour shift is a long day, I can tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it is in, in that, those circumstances. And what then did you take? So you've taken a lot away from that first role, understanding the base operations in the bank, understanding the the roles that there are, the customers. How long was that placement for and how did you progress during that? Well, there, there is a, even today, there's a two-year program that's basically the dual um, education system here in Germany. Yeah, so that, that's really... So good. Yeah? Yes, yeah, so good. So it, uh, you go to school and, and you learn also you know, all the, the fundamentals directly from fundamentals of banking. And yeah, my, my progression was another weird um, step. Um, I learned in school all about capital markets and options and, and this type of stuff. And um, that was really fascinating to me. So I really liked the idea of capital markets and I really liked the idea of call and, and of, of options. And derivatives because I, I didn't have a lot of money and I thought, okay, I can play a little bit of on capital market with doing them bets and option. And I started it and luckily I, I was quite successful and got in touch with some traders in Munich and build a kind of an informal communication line with them at the Munich Stock Exchange. At that time, Munich had its own stock exchange. And then the HR department asked me what I want to do after the banking apprenticeship. And I said, yeah, I want to be a trader. And then there was this guy and he, he explained it, uh, explained to me that it will take six years or seven years till I'm on the trading floor. All the different programs, all the different departments. And so I was super frustrated. And I came back to the branch and had a discussion with the colleagues. And then I told one of the colleagues, I'm calling the responsible board member and ask him whether this is okay. <laughs> and everybody at the branch saying you cannot call a board member. Yeah, because and at that time, I think it was even more crazy to call has this idea than these days. But I called him and he was not available. And the secretary was super nice. And most likely my name helped me. I think she thought that I'm a kind of senior person. And so she asked me whether she can transmit to a senior, a senior executive who is responsible for trading. And I talked to him in half an hour about capital markets, about options, the direction, about the saving rate in Garmisch, that it's coming down, that people more and more invest in shares. And after 30 minutes, he asked me, what is the purpose of your call? Then I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing my apprenticeship. And the HR department told me it takes six years to get there, to be a trader. And then this guy said, uh, Mr. Lehmann, uh, it's one of these moments you always remember. He said it will take a couple of days. <laughs> I am I just loving this because here's early evidence of some of the behavior that I'm, I'm familiar with seeing. <laughs> this is not accepting being told and being assertive and pushing. So, you jumped six years. You skipped six years of the formal process. Yeah. So I started as a trader. And then after a couple of months or yeah, as a year or so, 
The responsible board member asked me whether I want to continue as a trader, uh, but but he recommended to me that I should go and um, study economics in parallel. So the deal was I basically worked in the vacation time of the university as kind of a, a replacement of some traders who went on vacation on their personal vacation. Right. And, and that brought me the first time to New York, actually. So we, I don't think we've mentioned which company this Hypo, was. Uh, today it's Hypo Finance Bank. Uh, at that time, it was called Bavarian Finance Bank. And when you did your apprenticeship, just to clear this up for my own uh, benefit, Eric. So when you did your apprenticeship, you were studying and working at the same time. This no, no, combined. I finished, I finished the apprenticeship. Okay. Then moved to Munich uh, on the trading floor. Right. Was a trader. Okay, so full-time trader. Yes, and then I started kind of this dual education. Yeah, so yeah. I was basically helping the company or the bank uh, in times where some of the traders went on vacation. And if this matched my university schedule, I, I did this. Yeah, I've heard similar from other German guests, and it just seems an ideal system that you get to continue your education at the same time as being in the workplace and really having practical experience and growing that side yeah. of you as well. So you were doing that in the in vacation, so supporting where some traders had gone on vacation. And what happened then when you got to the end of that period? Well, then I, basically I switched the side. So after I um, graduated, I started a job in investment banking. Um, but just one step back in 1988, I worked on Wall Street. So that brought me to Wall Street um, in a small investment bank, which was associated to a finance bank. They looked for someone who supports them selling ADRs uh, to the US market. Okay, what are ADRs? ADRs are certified as a certification program for international stocks who are not officially listed at a New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ at that time. Right. And was this really you were going in the direction you wanted to go. It was getting to Wall Street a big ambition for you at that point? Well, it, you know, being in Munich, getting the opportunity was a big ambition. Having uh, lived there, I had a different opinion of that. Yeah, okay. I didn't earn a lot of money, so I had, had $450 a month, which basically I spent for a bed and a, a closet in a shared apartment. Right. I, I was heavily invited by all these traders, but um, I think the first time I realized, you know, living in New York is, is super expensive. And, and if you don't earn this money, it can be really a drag on you. Okay. So what had been an exciting aspiration looking at it from Munich, the reality was a little bit different. Well, you know, the exactly. It was a comparison between kindergarten and Champions League. Okay. So. <laughs> So what did you learn, apart from that, that New York's expensive and if you're going to be there, you want to be earning significant sums? What what did you learn from that period? Well, it obviously was a crazy uh, time and I learned that you have to be super careful not to be eaten up by Wall Street or any job. Yeah, because I very quickly realized if you work the whole day, if you go out every night, if you spend the, the weekend with some of these people, um, you give up your life in, in the hands of this Wall Street community. And that can be, yeah, it can be dangerous. Mm. 
I'm comparing it to perhaps the lifestyle when you're in Garmisch. And perhaps a much healthier, maybe even closer to your heart sort of lifestyle than than the Wall Street one. I'm sure we'll come back to, you know, your experience of the capital markets, your knowledge of investment banking served you later on very well in later roles. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But you would have been what sort of age, late 20s when you were? There was in uh, 1988, there was um, 26. Yeah, so mid-20s. Wow, that's quite an impressionable age still to be in that environment. But you were able to go there just on your, by yourself, so no family and children in tow at that point. How long did you spend there? It was half a year, nearly a half a year. Right. And then where did you come back to? And I came back to Munich and finished my... Basically, another year to go to graduate. Right. Yeah, interesting exposure. Then did you stay with that bank once you graduated? Uh, they offered me an investment banking um, opportunity. So I switched the side from trading to investment banking. I did a lot of um, project finance. Uh, you will remember at that time, the biggest project finance project uh, was a tunnel between France and Great Britain. So I was involved in, in, this, in, in, in this project and Disney World in Paris. Ah, and then they, it started to have a lot of projects due to the reunification of East and West Germany. So the, the whole power plant system was funded by projects, or a lot of them. Yeah, so in East Germany, they still burned coal without any filtration. So there were areas where it snowed black, basically. And to have enough funding, they structured some minimum pricing for electricity so that you could basically structure a project where private persons invested in uh, some equity and you got funding from banks. That's what I did. I did a lot of M&A, leverage finance, and that basically then brought me 1996 back to New York again. Okay. So did you prefer the investment banking to the trading side? Was that, is that a logical progression to go from trading to investment banking or was it a decision you chose about the style of work? Yeah, I think after, after having spent a significant part of my time at the university in, in trading, I found it interesting to be on the other side. Yeah, so at that time, equity market was not that dominant. So it was more the bond market, which dominated the investment banking activities. And um, yeah, they asked me whether, whether I want to join them. And it was, I, I was lucky because I was the only one who had a trading experience and had an informal network in the trading floor. So that really helped to structure some of the transactions. And yeah, but that was pure luck. There was no big strategy behind it. Right. Very interesting. As always, the, the things we pick up along the way, the experience we have, the network that we have, how that can affect our attractiveness for a certain role our suitability for a role so how did you feel about going back to new york the second time well super excited i was uh, at that time married laura was two years old and my wife sabine and i thought this is a, a fantastic opportunity so yeah we i was asked on a monday and um, i had time till friday and then we decided to hop on a plane on saturday and do not house hunting but you know yeah, like a look and see, look yeah, and look see. And see trip, and then we decided to do it. Right. So this time with Sabine and Laura mm-hmm. with you, and 
you had a much better idea now going into this what it was going to be like this wasn't something you just imagined from unit you'd already been there you'd experienced it and were the circumstances of the job that you were going to be doing i presume you were going to be on a little bit more money this time and reckon you could uh, enjoy it a bit more it definitely was a little bit more money but i totally underestimated the cost of living <laughs> Okay. So, um, you know, having lived in a in a shared uh, apartment, it was a bed and a closet calling your own. Uh, and now coming with a family, we really learned it a hard lesson because Sabine and I said, okay, if we go to New York, we want to live in New York or Manhattan and not in the suburbs. And we went to a real estate agent and we looked at some apartments and he, sh- he showed us in the upper west side, he showed us an apartment on the second or third floor which we could have afforded or we could have had afforded. And then one on the 28th or 30th floor, which the, the rental costs were more than my monthly income. Right. Yeah. But on the third floor, you know, th- th- you couldn't live. You know, when a fire truck passed the apartment, you thought, okay, this is not going to work with kids. Oh, okay. So how was the experience then when you got out there? Well, it was a super fascinating experience. i I jumped into the ice cold water. We built the corporate finance, uh, where we structured the corporate finance department at that time. We very much focused on leverage finance, junk bonds, and these type of activities. Uh, we did some LBO leverage. It's an ABS structure. Anyway, so, so we we did a lot of, um, let's say, uh, we focused very strongly on the core competence of the bank lending money. Uh, but I got involved in all these um, with all these great uh, rating agencies, uh, Moody's, S&P, the whole market of syndicated loans. That was great uh, experience. And then and, and quickly, uh, shortly after we arrived, my family arrived in uh, New York, uh, Philip was born. So we had a, you know, kind of different family life now with two kids, as you know, and there are some activities and uh, working in Manhattan, living in the suburbs, yeah, it was a were were fascinating four years we spent there. Four years, right? Um, were you? Did you ever have any thoughts about the sports teacher thing, or were you fully engaged in pursuing this career now? At that time, I was fully engaged. Yeah. Before I forget, you know that I got my nickname in New York at that time. Tell us about that. Yeah, because I was standing in front of my team, I don't know, a couple of, let's say, 100, 150 people. And then a young uh, guy got up and said, okay, Eric, we're not going to spell your name. And then he said, you're, you're triple E. And the, the phrase was then that, you know, that's uh, the lowest rating of HVB, HVB, the high performance bank. Um, <laughs> and triple E rating. <laughs> yeah, because the rating stops at D, which is default, <laughs> the average loan in Hong Kong, and then comes triple E. So that, that um, and, and I still meet people in Manhattan who remembered that. <laughs> That's good. And that makes me think you had a big team by yeah. then. Yeah. And you started out your leadership experience with with the military colleagues, some of whom had spent time in prison. And now you are dealing with these different sort of people in New York. Did you notice any difference or is is there more, more, more similarity than difference between leading those teams? On a, on a different level, there's a lot of similarity 
because they looked at me as, okay, now comes a kindergarten boy from Munich who wants to tell us something about capital market or corporate finance. And then you realize it's an, it is a mixture of strong vision, competence, and leadership skills to get these people working for you. None of these bankers had to work for me. They could have found another job in another bank. This, these were the times where all these all banks basically grew their, part, uh, their departments in capital market and corporate finance in New York or in the U.S. The Chinese, the Japanese, particularly Japanese, they built huge departments at that time. So in some ways, we've got a similar thing going on at the moment, not necessarily in banking uh, specifically, but lots of organizations are finding it really difficult to hire and retain people at the moment. So you just mentioned really interesting to me point there about a vision. So just say a little bit more about how you do that and how you learned to do that if you did or when it struck you that I really need to paint a clear picture for people or create a vision first? Well, I've never been uh, trained and told, but I, I realized that, and I think this comes from, from my sporting activities, that someone has to decide on which summit you want to walk or hike. Yeah? Or if you do, particularly if you do mountain biking, which track you're using. Yeah. So someone has to make, has to has an idea where to go. And that somehow naturally progressed to that. I thought about, okay, I have a, a broken corporate finance department, which lost a lot of money. I had a boss where it challenged me. We are still friends, but you know, he, he needed also some quick success. And that somehow developed this process was an unstructured process for me uh, to develop an idea where to go. Today, I think most people realize that you need this vision and you have this famous 100 days and you try to understand, even if you have a five a team is five person, you're not get, getting them behind you if you if you don't have an idea where to go and what to, what to do. And I love that expression. Someone needs to have an idea where to go. <laughs> it really simplifies what it's all about. Yeah. And, 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 and I think if you are in the mountains, it help, this really helps. Yeah, if, if you, for example, if if the weather changes and, and there is thunderstorm coming, you realize that a lot of people are starting to be confused what to do. So and, and you don't have a lot of time and it can be life threatening. So you have to make a decision and you have to stick to it. You don't have time uh, to revise it. Yeah. So, you know, kind of try to think what really helped me. I think this is the time it was a military experience when we all kind of activities at three o'clock in the night. And these people were trained to put ammunition mines where you told them. And when you were, and when you were asked to move, then you had to develop a plan. Mm. So when you had this failing, you were put in charge of this failing corporate finance function. Yeah. What did you decide was where you wanted to go? What did you decide was the, the path to take? Well, I had a lot of discussion with the team to learn what they feel went wrong and why they are sitting in this, let's say, uncomfortable position, not making money. And you could realize that the competitive landscape at that time, and I think even today, makes certain parts of investment banking for a European bank uncompetitive or, or, or you are uncompetitive and m a is, is is a key part of it you, do, you don't have 
the death of people and, and structure and recognition um, that you can play an active role on M&A. But everybody in Munich thought, okay, uh, US is such a big M&A market, so let's grow M&A. But the key competence of the bank, even today, is long-term lending. So with the funding side of the bank, the bank can provide funds up to 30 years because they issue 30-year bonds. And all US banks didn't provide this long maturities. And for, for certain leverage finance transaction and certain project finance and junk bond transactions, it was very interesting to have uh, a bank supporting a more long-term funding structure. And yeah, I, I thought this is, this is something where we have a competitive edge. And that really helped us in the first 18 months to turn around and, and make a lot of money. Yeah, because right. all the big banks, they all, all were in yeah, short-term funding activities, not, not more than five years. Seven, eight years was already seen as critical and they couldn't get um, any quotes from their treasurer for an eight-year loan. No. So you found, you identified what it was where your strength was yes. rather than competing in the area where you didn't have the depth of experience or the exactly. people. Let's, yeah. let's go and do what we're good at and which they don't have Yeah, here. There's so much I'd like to talk about, Eric, on today, you know, investment banking now and what's happening with um, in the automotive space or mobility space. So let's keep keep moving forward. There's also some of the things that happened later in your career that you've uh, told me fascinating stories about before. So were there other key moments from that second phase in New York or shall we move on? Well, you know, I think for the audience, you know, I'm, I'm always asked, why did you then change? Yeah, because I, I, was, I was promoted. I was, let's say, seen as a, a great talent. And that there was all the time the feedback in my, let's say, annual review uh, discussion with some of the board members. And I thought, okay, I'm on a good track to do the next step in the bank. And so I didn't spend a lot of time uh, flying to Munich. So I basically, I wouldn't say ignore, but underinvested in my network in Munich. And I had a colleague, which was a nice guy, and he did kind of this relationship banking for, the, for German companies. Yeah? And he flew to Munich every second week, sitting in Munich for two good days, having some coffee with all these guys there. And I was saying, okay, but, okay this is not what I think is, is necessary. But when a very senior position came up, he get, got this position. And then I called the responsible board member and said, hey, you told me that I'm number one on your list if this position comes available. And then this guy, and <laughs> we had a very, very good relationship, said, Eric, I forgot about you. That was a killing moment of, to me, feeling appreciated in this bank. And so I tell everyone, if you go abroad, if, if, you know, investing in your network, no matter how people view it, is utmost important. Because these decisions do not happen like the HR department are always claiming that there's a structured process and they discuss for hours. If the senior guys have an immediate need, they have some names in mind and then they decide. And if, you, if you're not lucky that they recognize you, they make a decision, which they might regret later on, but this they don't admit. And so 
this kind of was the moment where I feel I felt really kind of you know, how to say really bad about the bank and the management. How do you feel about that now? On the one side, I'm, I'm, I'm still surprised that it happened with this person. On the other side, I'm I'm super grateful uh, because most likely I wouldn't have done the rest of my professional journey if this wouldn't have happened. Okay. I'm so glad you shared that story. And I coach people and so often meet people who work really hard at what they think, what genuinely are the most important things for the business that they're working for. And to try and persuade them to do the networking bit that you're describing can be difficult because they're convinced it shouldn't be like that. It's not, it's not fair. That's not, that's not right. That's not proper. That's not how things should work. Um, but it is how things work. And I'm glad you shared that example. So that was the end of your relation. You, you lost sort of a little bit of trust with the organization. Was that a straightforward? You decided, okay, I'm going to look for something else. No, I was deeply frustrated. Of course. Yeah. I had, um, a couple of red, the bottles of red wine, um, not only beer. Um, and then I did my job, you know, I, I overcame it, but then came this opportunity of uh, joining a startup company in Munich as a CFO with a, with a clear focus to do an IPO as it was end of 2000. And as a family, we had this discussion whether we stay longer in the US uh, because it was already for years. And uh, so we decided why not going back to Germany? Well, we knew that if we don't go back to Germany, we probably will stay in the US because then I would have looked for some opportunities in the US, in a US bank, and there were opportunities. But I think we've, we felt also with the kids that um, it's the right time to, to move back to uh, Germany. Um, I started a discussion with the bank that the type of positions were not really attractive, and then came this um, interesting opportunity, which at the end of the day, I grabbed, despite the fact that I felt a little bit uncomfortable uh, when I met the management and some of the venture capital funds about the business model and the numbers. But that's a whole different story as well. It's quite a big deal to leave the safe environment of a bank yeah, and to move into a startup. Were you thinking about it in those, especially when you've got a young family? as well were you thinking about the risk in those terms when you did that uh absolutely and i had a big discussion uh, uh, with my wife and i remember we had a meeting here in munich with the management and and i called her and said something is wrong in this in this uh, business model but just let's do it yeah I, I, I just had so many trust in the bank that i thought okay somehow we are going to manage that and somehow we are going to manage I'm going to manage being a CFO in the company and we get the IPO right. And I wouldn't have done it five years later. So I, I was 40 at that time. So I said, okay, we have a certain amount of money. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have any debt uh, we didn't, uh, because we didn't bought any, anything in the US. <clears throat> so I knew that we have some financial flexibility to overcome some time with, let's say, a significant low salary which actually then happened. Yeah. So I joined the company. So I quit this well-paid banking job. I, I joined the startup and it took me nine months to get the numbers right. And 
as some people know that the new economy market collapsed, so there were no idea about IPO. We had to restructure the company. The company is still existing, um, but I had to. But basically, I had to, to deal with the fixed part of my income, which was a fraction of my income as a banker, and all the stock options and all these these fascinating stuff were worthless because with a stock option, uh, unfortunately, you cannot buy milk in the supermarket. No. So how long was that difficult period for? Three years. Right. So we had to do funding rounds. And it was was a restructuring the company, letting go 70% of the people, repositioning the company, having big discussion with um, the founders. is tough, particularly like today when capital markets change dramatically and valuations drop like a stone. And I think today is very comparable to what I experienced 2000, end of 2000 till beginning of 2003. Say a bit more about that. Then we'll, we'll uh, rather than moving on to it later, let's do it now, Eric. So what, what are your thoughts on what's going on uh, now? So, I mean, we've got you know lots of disruption happening in mobility, lots of new players coming into the industry, some uh, valuations that are uh, were eye watering, and uh, and then some some changes around that. What's your take on this? And is it how's it going to develop? How long is it going to last? What do you think is going to happen next? If that's a, makes sense as a question, definitely. You know, if if we look at the mobility market the transformation um, is twofold one that the powertrain itself is moving from a combustion engine to electric hydrogen or e-fuels and and i think the game or the decision <clears throat> has not been yet made uh, i think more and more people realize that pure electric is not going to work they realize that pure hydrogen um, is too complex to store and to distribute um, so the new CEO of uh, VW, Mr. Blumen, he is very strongly promoting e-fuels uh, because that helps you to use the actual uh, storage and distribution network of any petrol station. Uh, but so the powertrain topic is a huge challenge for any car company because for the last 50 years or even more, uh, 100 years, the combustion engine was the core element of providing individual mobility. Um, I think the second disruption is that the last 40, 50, 60 years, individual mobility in a car was extremely admired by any developed country. And now the generation of our kids and the society has, has changed. So individual mobility is not seen anymore as, as something to admire. It, it is something which is... It's not part of growing up, as it's not a rite of passage in the same way that it was when we exactly. were. So we will see how things develop, but I think uh, we are at the very, very, very beginning of, of this trend. We will see how, how things uh, play out, whether it's the sharing industry, whether it's different concepts of providing mobility. But to me, the key concern is space. At the end of the day, the most successful mobility solution will recognize that in metropolitan areas, space is limited. Yeah, so public transportation or a mixture of public transportation and individual mobility with um, using more seats, in my view, will be a strong trend which we see in the future. Mm. So if you look at the roads in London, in Munich, in, in any Asian or American city, 
typically they're sitting one or two people in the size of a car where you can sit eight people. Mm. And you see a lot of redirection of funds. So here in Germany, they redirect funds into uh, the train system. That's the future. Yeah, lots of things pointing yeah. in that in that good direction. So the IPO didn't happen. IPO um, didn't happen. And then after three years, I was asked by Headhunter whether I want to join Softlab. Softlab was an IT consultant company owned by BMW. And that's how I made my way to BMW. And the idea was uh, to restructure the company. We did a couple of M&A transactions to position the company with a strong European footprint and ultimately sold it to Entity Data. So I spent three years with Softlab, was involved in the sale of the company to Entity Data, and then joined BMW as a group treasurer. So leveraging all of the experience that you had yeah. built up to that point, even in the soft, in the, even in the startup that that didn't yeah. uh, go where you wanted it to, but this time it came right with SoftLab. It was a successful uh, sale. And um, had you you haven't mentioned cars really at all so far, Eric. So getting into BMW wasn't a lifelong ambition of yours. But obviously, growing up in Munich, you'd have struggled not to be aware of the uh, the business. Yeah, but no, it was never an ambition to go, go to BMW. Yeah, so I, I never had an ambition to go anywhere other than I think the biggest ambition I had was to move back from the US to, to Germany. And I grabbed the first opportunity with a startup. Yeah, right. I learned a lot with restructuring and all we talked about on leadership skills, developing a vision you know, it really helped me to keep the startup over water. Yeah. And then I just had to look for another job. And I found it interesting at SoftLab as an opportunity, not particular being W as a shareholder. No, looking at it as a as a project, as, yeah. a, as a, a task to do an assignment. Exactly. So then you found yourself after the sale, you found yourself in BMW. Whereabouts in BMW did you start out? At Group Treasurer. Right. So the financial crisis um, hit me six or nine months after I joined BMW as a group treasurer. That and must have been whatever you're comfortable to share about that experience. It's some time ago now, but uh, what are you happy to to tell us from those days? Well, I, th- I think it was a, a for the German car manufacturers. It was a I don't have a better word, but life threatening experience. They all built these massive financial service um, activities, and therefore they had billions of funding needs, completely underdeveloped their treasury activities, because the, the years before that were, were worked all quite nicely. At that time, we had a CFO, which was um, significantly ill and unfortunately passed away at the end of that year after the Lehman crisis. So you were sitting there, and I know all the treasurers from uh, VW or the treasurers from VW and Daimler as well, because we had an intensive talk. Senior management at the beginning, even the the let's say the nine, twelve months before Lehman happened, not recognizing that there are things on the horizon which might build up to a perfect storm. And yeah, if you have if you have not been on a trading floor, if you, if you have not been involved in trading activities, you don't understand how capital market work. And uh, when Lehman happened, then 
based on my experience, I thought, okay, you know, this is now really, really challenging for the company to uh, yeah, stay liquid, to find en enough liquidity. And I always uh, tell these, this story, what that meant at that time. On capital market, you have to make decisions and nobody's going to help you. Yeah, and it's within minutes or let's say half a day uh, because you have windows of opportunity and either you grab them or you lose them. And this is something a car manufacturer doesn't understand Yeah, because the development cycle, um, a typical development cycle of a car is three years and everything is checked 10 times. Yeah? So before they decide on a windshield or, or on a design, it is reviewed, reflected, checked with customers, blah, blah. If you want to offer a bond, there is a window of opportunity in capital market and you either grab it or not. And that's within hours. So what happened in the days after Lehman filed for, for insolvency is that an analyst, a banking analyst, wrote an analyst report with the headline, can the German car companies fund their balance sheet? And the shares of the car companies dropped significantly. I think some of them double digit. So you get the call of the CEO and he says, what the fuck is going on? And you explain to him that investors are now seeing that there's the, the liability side of the bank is massive, which they have never looked at because they always looked at car sales and margin in the car business. And now they recognize, and you can look this up on Reuters, Bloomberg, any public service, how many bonds are maturing before year end. And that was a significant billion amount with BMW and even a higher amount for some of the competitors. So after a couple of days, um, some of the utilities companies um, entered the bond market. And I knew that one step back, the, the, the big impression of the senior management of BMW was we talk to this analyst, we talk to investors, and we talk. My experience in capital market is talk doesn't help. You have to successfully prove that you can do something. So I told my team, we're going to do a bond. No matter how, how crazy. And, and all investment banks called me and said, you know, Eric, you're going to fail. And whoever has done a bond offering knows the process. Um, mm -hmm. So it took us the afternoon quite some time to find banks supporting the bond offering. And they didn't underwrote it. They just uh, were supporting it. And then the next morning you have this, what is called whispering. So they, there are rumors on the capital market, um, you know, kind of from these investment banks that uh, BMW is coming to the market with a bond. And I, I spent quite a time the days or the weeks before on, on the, in the US with the big pension funds and the investment funds to understand what they need, what kind of return they expect. And you also have to recognize that you need a 500 million bond, a successful, let's say, you have to put a minimum 500 million uh, to the market because otherwise it's not interesting for the large funds and insurance companies. And then the, frame, the phrase they use is benchmark bond. So we started the bond offering and it didn't went well in the, in the beginning. And I called some of the guys I met on the West Coast and you can call them at three o'clock in the morning their time. And I said, okay, what do you need? And we increased the pricing and ultimately some guy put down an order of 250 million, which brought us over 500 million. And we ended up the day, I think somewhere between one and a half and two billion bond offering. And that completely changed the perception of BMW and capital market. 
And I didn't, I didn't ask any board member. I didn't wrote any memo. I just did it. That was a big difference to one competitor, which I don't want to name now. And he called me and said, you're lucky because I have to write a proposal and it takes two weeks till the board is deciding on. And the window of opportunity you created by a cyclical company successfully tapping capital market is open now, but they don't understand that they have to act now. I want, I want basically to act on your back. And it took him um, three weeks to get approval for the bond. And uh, well, this company really, really struggled big, big times. But Mr. Reithofer, or the, the CEO at that time, he, he was very clear. Uh, he asked me what is happening when if the bond offering fails. And I told him, you have to uh, call the chancellor, the German chancellor for support, which luckily didn't happen. <laughs> Otherwise, we would talk about a different career after. <laughs> The rest of this story would be somewhat different. I love that story. What I'm thinking while you were telling me that story or telling us that story, Eric, a few thoughts popped into my mind. One is this idea that, you know, we talked about a number of my guests who've started at the bottom of the bank, right at the grassroots level. And the experience that you had as a trader on the trading floor, you said, unless you have done that, you don't understand how the capital markets work. So there you were, you found yourself in the role of group treasury at BMW, but with a trader's experience. You also used the line in this conversation, someone needs to know where to go. And if the snow is coming down, if the if the if the snow's coming down on the mountain or visibility's coming down, you don't have a big window to decide what to do or where to go. Uh, and so what you would have experienced in your military career is not dissimilar to the level of threat. You said it was an existential threat. You know, are the car companies going to survive? Are they going to be able to meet their liabilities? So it was all coming together at this time, those experiences you had, the strengths that you had, the characteristics. And I'm su- imagining... The gentleman from the competitor who you mentioned who said, I've got to go through a three-week process, I can't imagine the process at BMW would have been any shorter than that. But you managed to either go around it or push through it or do something to act in the timescale that you needed to act. Interesting enough, BMW at that time didn't have a process. Yeah, So it was not. it was up to the group treasurer to decide on. Whether okay. it's still valid today, I don't know. Uh, but at that time, you know, the group treasury department developed under the radar screen of any board member, even the CFO who was responsible at that time, where is still the CFO of a car company is typically responsible for the financial service activities, had up until the financial crisis no clue about the funding side. Yeah, because they had no banking experience. They don't understand that asset liability management is, is a key aspect of making money in a bank. Mm. And it hadn't mattered before. It had never been an issue. No, but then it mattered. And I can tell you, I looked into uh, glory eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was remarkable. So I think you were personally very much at risk. Well, not personally. I mean, we have to, again, bring this back to your military days. And my brother-in-law who... um, also had a full military career would sometimes remind me that Andy in your job if things go wrong nobody dies or 
they they haven't so far in the, in my uh, financial services career. <laughs> but in a corporate setting, in a commercial setting, you you were at risk. I assume that if the bond offering would have failed, I would have to leave the company. Sometimes you have to be lucky in life. Yeah, and bold. True. And and know the way and be prepared to take it and take people with you. What happened after that? Well, after three years, I, I um, then switched basically the side from the liability side of the financial service business to the um, asset side and um, took over the responsibility of financial services globally. Let's talk about that. Um, so global, global uh, responsibility, close to 9,000 people now who you could have an influence over. What were some of the things when you worked out, I know where to go after your 100 days or however long it took, what were your thoughts on, okay, this is where I want to go with this group of people and this business? Well, I was fortunate enough that um, we had the CEO meeting in Columbus, Ohio. And um, so all the I think 56 or so uh, CEOs of all the different uh, countries and regional managers were in Columbus, Ohio for a week. And that really helped me to have a, a similar discussion like with the corporate finance team in the bank in New York, uh, to really listen to what they explained, what they, what they talked about, what are the, the challenges, the opportunities. Um, we talked about what, what means a global culture, um, so I was really fortunate to have this meeting and, 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 and I think this was another lucky or necessary week uh, to really get to know um, all the people, their ideas and, and to sharpen my vision of where to go. Mm. And that's where, for example, this idea of what to do with Alphabet, the fleet management um, company developed very strongly because we were too small uh, to be successful and too large to die. So we, we really had to think about M&A activities, which we ultimately then with the acquisition of the ING Carly's business uh, did. But it developed in this discussion with these uh, CEOs. I see. And I plan to ask you about that acquisition, uh, which was the largest acquisition? Second largest acquisition of BMW. And then your M&A background... Again, just perfect supporting you being able to understand that and follow it through. And it was a successful. I know some of the things you did some very clear, you took some very clear actions during the course of that to, to bring those two businesses together to integrate Alphabet and ING. Would you mind just sharing a few of the, the priorities that you set in terms of bringing the, the teams together? Well, my experience on M&A was um, that most companies I supported as an advisor spent far too much time on the valuation piece and the due diligence, on the financial due diligence, but lacked um, the focus on the post-merger integration. So what we are actually doing with these assets. Yeah? So there were, there's all the excitement about, okay, do we over, overpay and, and, and are the numbers correct and and, and you spend hours in discussing, uh, discussing receivables, uh, salaries of senior managers, pension liabilities. But very rarely that you have an intensive discussion, how does the new organization, how does, how do, does the new business going to look like? 
And I think the key differentiator was that we, from the very, from the first day of the uh, due diligence, we had a strong team of how to build this new organization. And as we all know, banking is about people in IT. Um, IT, you cannot fix that quickly, um, but the people you can lose quite quickly, particularly the strong ones. So we very quickly, uh, and we had um, the challenge that uh, in some countries, the operations of both companies, BMW Financial Services or Alphabet and ING Carly's had a similar size. So to me, it was clear you cannot have them operate in parallel. So uh, I asked the, uh, the team to come up with a proposal before we sign, and then we did a roadshow at, uh, at signing, and then you have the period till closing where a lot of uncertainty is, where we outlined how we're going to do it. And we decided on the, on, in each country on the key management levels within this period between signing and closing. So we, we didn't implement a post-merge integration project. Uh, we, we had this in the line function of the responsible CFO, CEO, and COO of the respective country. So before you closed the deal, you'd already determined who the leadership, senior leadership team in each market? Well, we didn't know these people. But I said, okay, we are not going to have parallel organizations. We have integrated organizations. That means we have two CEOs and we have to select one. And in this discussion with the CEO of ING Carlis and, and the guy who did run Alphabet at that time, um, I decided to have both uh, in a co-CEO role to support this, uh, this integration. And the CEO of ING Carlis was close to retirement. So another two or three years um, to really support this transformation, integration, and building a new culture. But uh, both of them had the task after signing to come up with a decision who is going to be the CEO of Great Britain, the CFO and the CEO. And the task was to announce the new leadership team and to have a fair opportunity for the ones who are not... CEO anymore was CFO. So that meant you wasted no time. There was no time lost from closing exactly. to somebody knew that they owned this or some a group of people knew they owned the success in that market from the moment it yeah. closed. And I strongly believe that you have to have this in a line function rather than a project. A lot of M&A transactions do it in a project and then the line managers do not let them succeed. Or put it this way, there is a huge potential of conflict of interest. Yeah. So you have to solve this immediately. That sounds like a significant step. Were there other key points? Because I want to ask you about culture as well. You mentioned the culture that you wanted to create in that organization. I want to talk about the broader culture that you wanted to create. You did create in financial services, in BMW financial services. But are there any other key points from that integration process? Well, <laughs> There are obviously a lot of people involved. There, there were a lot of concerns within uh, the BMW group, including the board members, to spend a, um, a significant billion amount on an acquisition for financial services. And without the support at this, the CFO at that time, who trusted me um, in my strategic assessment that we either close Alphabet or we do a major acquisition and that the ING Carly's acquisition is a huge opportunity as ING were forced um, after the financial crisis to, to sold these assets. He thought it's valuable. Luckily, it, it played out 
nicely for uh, financially and also a number of cars sold to um, were being managed in these fleets. So, but without him, I most likely wouldn't have been successful. That's a, getting, getting the approval to do it. Yes, that's a good uh, point, Eric, because sometimes you were in a very senior role, you're global head of financial services, but nevertheless, you still need the support of people senior to you and, uh, and the support of the board to make a, an acquisition yeah. like that. Very good. And so moving on to the the culture topic, when you looked at the global financial services, you're in Columbus, Ohio, met with the CEOs, you're taking over this this area. What were your thoughts on what you wanted, how you wanted the culture to develop? Well, I think after this week, there was this clear feedback of most of the people outside of, of, of Munich that there is no global culture. Yeah, the, 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 there is a headquarter culture and then there are some cultures in the respective markets, but there's very little global interactivity. Yeah, and my predecessor already uh, tried to push very hard, but obviously in the financial crisis, he had other topics to solve. So yeah, that's where we started to think about how we're going to change it. And um, then we had this idea of doing it bottom up. So we did this uh, generation financial services, as it was called. And the idea behind it was to that every market, every country uh, selects one or two young uh, colleagues and that they develop an idea how a global culture sh shall look like. And then they were asked um, to align on the internet so they, they basically aligned globally. And this was moderated by a coach and some of the coaching people within BMW. And that was yeah, super helpful. Yeah. It was a big threat to some of my colleagues here in Munich, um, financial service colleagues. There were some regional managers who heavily supported it. Others didn't like it. Um, but at the end of the day, if you engage with the, the, the young talent in your organization, you get a very unpolitical, open view on things. And if they can interact with, with in each other, they get more uh, comfortable with it. So if, if I would have asked each of these young talents, they probably wouldn't have told me what they discussed in the group and then presented it as a group outcome. Mm, yeah. Well, I was able, lucky enough to witness it and saw the level of excitement that it generated and they were committed and they liked reaching out and the bonds that they formed and very proud to have that role as well. And I think they will look back on it very fondly with being at that period and that they were part of that generation uh, financial services team. Is there, I'm thinking, are there other from your financial services period uh, as head of financial services, Eric, we've got the Alphabet ING integration. Were there other major points that stand out for you? Well, not necessarily. There were, you know, challenges every day. I think one point in terms of leadership is that I learned with a coach how to deal with uh, a global organization time-wise. And, and she um, really asked me to reduce my fully booked schedule by 30%, okay. which I found the most valuable input of a coach I ever had. 
So I had this exercise with my secretary, which nearly killed me, um, to say, okay, going forward, 30% of your calendar is empty uh, because you are much too much involved in um, operational daily activity. That's not your uh, job as a global head. Um, you have to delegate and you have to trust your direct reports and others much more because you have to have the flexibility to react. And that really, really helped me in the rest of my career. And whenever someone asks me what was a major learning, then it was this 30% empty calendar. I can imagine a lot of people listening to this. And uh, if you could do it with 40 countries and 9,000 people to take care of, then uh, there's probably quite a few uh, other people who could could do that too was it your decision to to work with the coach was that y- yes. your own choice well i was asked um at some point whether i want to like uh when whether i want to do it and i felt okay it i had three coaches in my pro- professional career the, the first one i didn't like because i thought i'm i'm a good leader anyway so this was this level of investment banking arrogance which um i still had at that time and the second one was already quite helpful. And the lady, the third one was super helpful in many aspects. And I had, uh, and I, I think it was, it started um, after the financial crisis because the two years of the financial crisis really stressed me out. So I think today I was, I would, if I look back, I was very close to a burnout. Yeah, because I couldn't deal with, well, I had this feeling that I'm the only person understanding what what's happening on the on the liability side i couldn't talk to a cfo who had experience so i put this everything in my let's say in my personal responsibility and that started to eat me up yeah I, that makes sense because you weren't working in a in a bank in the yeah. sense that you were used to working in a bank where other people would have understood you yeah. were a, and you yeah. and you are totally alone yeah, yeah, as a group treasurer, if you go to an, a board member who is an engineer, he can tell you about the driving performance of a car, but not the performance of a bond market. Mm. And if you anyone to reflect on making decisions is a, is really hard. Yeah, so you felt that weight of that responsibility. Yeah, over the global financial crisis, and a coach helped to yeah. uh, work work helped to work with the coach. After financial services, what came after financial services? After financial services came my last big assignment that was after sales. So global head of after sales for BMW. So the whole service area. So whenever you have a problem with your car, the after sales department, make sure that the right parts, the right technology is at the right dealership and the dealer has the right technology to fix the car. Um, we had a number of conversations during those years and you were as excited you were approaching that with the same find a way to go, share a clear vision, um, well, I think, and high energy. Um, what you learn in financial services is that you have a direct interaction with your customer because your customer signs a lease or a finance contract. So financial services in the car industry is the point of direct interaction with the customer rather than the car company itself, because it sells the cars uh, to a dealer and the dealer's interaction point to the customer. 
And all of the car companies do not reflect the importance of uh, service. Yeah, because all the senior engineers, they're all excited about new cars, but dealing with a 10-year-old car can be painful. And they forget about the customer behind this 10-year-old car. Because this, there's a customer who decided to buy or purchase a used car, which is 10-year-old. And he, he decided on this particular brand, in, in my case, BMW. So I, I, I started basically the same process as I did in the corporate finance department in New York or with financial services. I used a methodology, which I think was developed by the universities and which was shown to me by my daughter, uh, which is called Business Model Canvas. And there are a couple of nice two or three minute videos how to develop a business model. And I tried it. I, I showed it to the senior team of AfterSales and said, okay, let's think about how we would set up after sales if we had a clean sheet of paper, which was a super exciting process. Mm. And, and, and you really realize the opportunities, uh, but you also realize the gap between the two-day two day structure and the potential which we worked out with the business model canvas concept. Mm. Maybe we put the link to that business model canvas concept in the show notes for this episode as well you shared that with me yeah. uh, before and it, it's that's what happened you put a new new set of ideas new way of looking at and a part of the business that's well established it's become what it has over a number of years for all very good reasons at the time uh, but exciting to be able to start with a blank sheet of paper not just for you but for the people you were working with in that team I'm sure especially when you've got a really well-established business behind you. So it's not like a startup where there's all the risk. You're getting to redesign something, but knowing that you are an established and well-funded business. And The startup experience really helped me uh, because, you know, it, it, it really helps you to understand that, you, that you're not going to survive as a startup if, you, if you're not at some point take your innovative idea and to work your way through um, a business model. Who's going to pay, you know, what kind of services are necessary? Uh, who are your partners? The, the, the whole concept. And I felt a lot of startups, um, which I talk to these days, don't take the effort. They have that great idea, um, but they don't take the effort to use this business model canvas or other strategies to develop a solid business pace, case behind their idea. And if you take traditional businesses, you have to take at some point a, a, a right sheet of paper um, to develop, let's say, a business model, which you would develop if you would be completely free, and then look at the gaps and, and, and how the transformation is going to look like. Absolutely. So I'm conscious of time, Eric, yeah. and there are still some places I want to, to go. I know you had another role after, after sales, which was equally fascinating in terms of looking at new business opportunities, new market opportunities and developing products potentially. Do you want to say a couple of words about that? I think at some point, the car industry is struggling with Latin America, Asia and Africa as markets. So they asked me, probably based on my background, uh, thinking out of the box, how to develop it. And I didn't want to use a typical strategy team in, in the in the organization. 
because most of them have never spent time in these markets, had no clue about the cultural aspect, the political aspect. So I was lucky to, to have my daughter writing her uh, master thesis and complaining that she always has to recall on some events which happened in the past and that they were never allowed to focus on something new. So, yeah, I, I developed the idea with, uh, with some colleagues in Brazil, in, in India and South, uh, and South Africa um, to engage with the technical universities in these countries and to ask the master classes um, of these universities uh, to develop a business model as if they would be CEO of BMW Brazil. And the only requisite was to stick to the existing car portfolio. So don't come up with this pickup proposal because BMW is not going to, uh, at that time, had no idea to do a pickup. So, and that was super fascinating. And we had in all countries, all the professors were super engaged. The proposals were thought through. They, they did customer interviews. It was a really thrilling experience dealing with with these guys in India, they built a mathematical model where I thought to myself, luckily I'm at the end of my career because these people are far too smart to me. <laughs> I, um, I can only imagine how engaging it must have been for them to deal with something real. Yeah. Uh, and not, as Laura said, not always having to do something that's already done and in the past and, you know, rework an old case study, I guess. Yeah. So fascinating approach. Again, drawing on young people, drawing on emerging talent. A really good story. The last thing I wanted, you've you mentioned, Laura, you mentioned Philip. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about, we were together for your birthday party uh, not so long ago. Towards the end of that evening celebration, Philip and Laura gave a speech, uh, which for me was the highlight. I mean, it was an amazing, amazing day, but still as a father, it was a highlight that speech that they gave. And we said when we talk, we should spend uh, a little bit of time talking about that and what what that meant to you compared with all these other amazing things we've just talked about, you know, the amazing achievements you've had. Let's just spend a few minutes talking about parenting and, and, and how did you feel when you were listening to their speech? Well, that, you know, honestly, that was the absolute highlight. And if, if your kids are being that positive to you, then you feel very grateful as a father. Yeah. And I definitely, if I, I, I look back, I, I definitely uh, had times where I didn't spend enough time with uh, Lauren Philip, which I definitely regretted afterwards. And I thought I, I need to, I need to spend this time, uh, which this lady, the coach told me that is not true. Um, you don't make a career by sitting each and every day till 10 o'clock in an office. There are other qualities which are necessary. Yeah, but at the end of the day, um, I think my wife and I always try to be extremely open and, and, and not, not trying to direct them, but support them. So all their ideas uh, were strongly supported. So when Laura was uh, 15, she wanted to spend six months uh, in Canada, which she did. And Philip, in the same age, uh, did six months high school in Australia. Um, they came back as little adults. Um, and it was particular, when Laura went to Canada, it was, uh, that was a tough experience when your kids starting to get independent and as of a sudden they're gone. Yeah? And, and you take them to the airport, you have, 
you have no way to interact with them if they land in Vancouver. Um, so letting letting um, the kids go and support them rather than to direct them was one of the key key success factors, if you want to phrase it this way. Engage with them. I, I do mountain biking with them. I do skiing with both of them. Having the same hobbies or trying to not only focus on the on, on their professional career, but also um, understand what makes them happy and uh, and see whether you can combine this with your life and gain and engage in these activities. That was what Sabine and I really did for the last twenty years. Mm. Have you, because of your life experience being different from your parents' life experience? Um, you didn't have the Second World War featuring, and and that's it. has that allowed you to have a lighter touch, if you like, and and be more comfortable to let them, let Philip and Laura pursue the path that they want to pursue. Yeah, definitely. I I think our generation or my generation had a more stable uh, platform to start with. I think. We didn't have to deal with the horrible experience of a war or also the, the material uncertainty, the financial uncertainty as an outcome of a war. At the end of the day, we grew up in a well-protected environment. So uh, we could, I think, let the kids experience their way of life much more open than my parents or that the generation of my parents could do or was willing to do uh, because they were much more focused let's say, to ensure that we have a better life than they had. And this, I think this thought process didn't exist in, in Sabine and my head. Mm. It, it's more let them develop and see where it takes them and, and support them and try to protect them from some bad decisions. Mm. Well, it was uh, very clear to see that you've done a wonderful <laughs> job if that's uh, the right thing to say about being a parent but yeah it was great to see and definitely a highlight uh, lastly i guess and eric what are you up to now and what are you interested if people want to contact you what are you interested to talk about and uh, connect about what's 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 going on in your life now well i always had this idea that after my professional career i want to support companies with my experience in a non-executive role. So I'm on two non-executive boards and um, I'm engaged in a startup company uh, to help them with their funding, with their strategy. Uh, so these are the type of activities I'm very excited about. Yeah. And, and then I enjoy uh, sports. So I, I'm living my sport teacher dream. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything I haven't asked you? Eric, that you think I've missed an opportunity to, uh, to no, I think you, you know you unfolded my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. That was the plan. And thank you so much for affording me so much time and uh, having this conversation with me today. It's been it's an absolute privilege to get you on on the show, as it were. Yeah, and, uh, you're um, more than welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for taking me. You've been listening to Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. 
I hope you found some helpful points to reflect on in Eric's story that can help you with your own career journey or that of those you lead, parent or mentor. You are unique. And during my conversation with Eric, you'll have picked up on topics that resonate with you. A few things that stood out for me were that his first choice would have been to have been a sports teacher, but his father, like many others at that time, encouraged him into a career in banking and the financial security it offered. The experience gained in military service, leading men from an early age and in challenging physical situations. The positive experience of a role where he could ski at lunchtime, followed by the not so positive experience of living in New York on $450 per month. Eventually getting back to New York with a young family for a bigger job to turn around the failing corporate finance arm of the bank. The senior leader who'd promised Eric a role when it came available, only to admit he'd forgotten about him when the time came around. Transitioning from a secure bank environment to a riskier startup where the trading environment prevented the planned IPO, followed by a successful development and sale of BMW-owned SoftBank to NTT Data. The experience he gained on the trading floor and the understanding of capital markets that would serve him so well in building up BMW's treasury function and handling the global financial crisis. The challenge of being an isolated expert in any organisation whose core business is not what you're an expert in, in Eric's case being a capital markets guy in an engineering company. The coach who encouraged him to keep 30% of his calendar free to be able to react when in a global role. The approach to the successful integration of ING and Alphabet, putting responsibility into the line functions rather than a project team. Taking a blank sheet of paper to after sales and using the business model canvas. Leveraging the universities in Brazil and India to devise strategies for mobility in their markets. And the emphasis placed on raising a family and supporting them to follow their own passions. You can contact Eric via email and we'll put his address in the show notes to this episode. We publish these episodes to celebrate my guests' careers, listen to their stories and learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. Thank you to all of you for sharing your feedback. Thanks also to Hannah and Julia, who, as part of the Careerview Mirror team here at Aquali, work so hard to deliver these episodes to you. This episode of Careerview Mirror is brought to you by Aquali. Aqualize mission is to enable fulfilling performance in the mobility industry. We use our very own fulfilling performance paradigm to help you identify the steps you need to take to enable fulfilling performance in your business. Contact me directly if you'd like to know more. My email is andy at aquali.co.uk. If you want to know more about fulfilling performance, you can also listen to episodes 60, 61 and 62. They're short side mirror episodes that explain our mission and its origin. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening.